I want to thank Libby for reading the uh, passage for today, and I want you to open your Bibles. We are going to be back in the book of 1 Corinthians again. We're finishing off chapter 1 today. And I want to give a special shout out again to our uh, tech team, uh, many of whom obviously braved the roads and the snow. And if you're at home today and maybe you've got that extra latte or that hot chocolate right now, there are some individuals that made their way in this morning, and I really want to give them a shout out, a little round of applause. Thank you for that, because uh, your labor means a lot to us. We happen to notice that for those that did come to the service, there are a number of people actually live with us today uh, in, in service. And we also noticed that a lot of the people that came, plaid was the kind of the soup du jour. I mean, it was like a lot of people were wearing plaid. I guess that snow kind of brought that out. And we joked that there might be axe throwing after this service. So we're, we're, we're counting on that. I think that would be some fun together. Well, today we are back into um, this sermon series. And I've called this sermon series Untangled. And I've called it Untangled because the church in Corinth faced some serious tangles. They had problems. And Paul said, I want to address you, Corinthians, so that we untangle some of those problems that you've had. And again, we started in, there's five main problems that Paul's going to address with the Corinthian church. And we started in with the very first problem that they had last week. And the problem was one of rivalries and divisions within the church. You remember when Paul started off chapter one, he said, you know, some of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter. And what he was saying to them was, you have so associated yourself with one person, or one piece of theology, or one cause, that you forfeited your overall unity in Christ. And so I want to really caution you against those rivalries, those factions, those divisions that can so quickly sneak into the church. And today he's going to continue on in more or less that theme. This is a continuation of where he was last week and some of the wisdom that he wants to give to the church on how to address some of those problems. Well, today we're going to begin with a single sentence. We're going to have a whole section here we're going to cover, but there's a single sentence that operates more like a topic sentence for this chapter as well as what's going to come for the next few times. And again, you remember when you were in school and you had a topic sentence? It was the sentence that controlled everything else. Everything else you wanted to say was around that one topic sentence. Well, that one topic sentence is the kickoff for the chapter for this week. It starts at verse 18, verse 18 and 19. I have it on the scriptures on the board here for you, but I also am hoping that you have your Bible open because we're going to make our way through this passage today, and I want you to have that handy. But this is the topic sentence I want you to see. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Paul very forcefully says that God is destroying the wisdom of the wise or the wisdom of this age. We're going to discover that the people in Corinth consider themselves to be pretty smart people, pretty learned people. And God says that I'm going to destroy whatever it is that you're relying upon. I'm going to destroy whatever you think's wise, whatever you think is right. I'm going to destroy that, and I'm going to replace that with what I consider to be my wisdom. Paul begins by quoting, and you'll notice there's quotes around that passage. It says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He says, it's written. 
And he's quoting back here from Isaiah chapter 29. And let's get some context around what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah is talking about a time in Israel's life in which they were looking around and they felt very weak. They felt very vulnerable. And they looked around at all these bigger nations that were coming to potentially squash them. And they said, wow, what could we do? What could we line up? What alliances could we have? What treaties could we sign? Because we're in trouble. And God allowed for them to get into that space. And in fact, the king of Assyria, the the commander of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes and he thinks it's going to be a piece of cake to walk into Jerusalem and just walk over the top of them and take over the city. In fact, he even begins to mock the God of the Jews. And what happens is, you know, he thinks he's going to be fat and sassy here. And God says, not so quick. And in one fell swoop, one night, God knocks off 185,000 of his soldiers. And he he retreats in disgrace with his tail between his legs. And what Israel is left with at this time is knowing we did nothing for that. In fact, our plans, were, were this was nowhere close to any of our plans. The power of God was greater than the wisdom of the age or the wisdom of man. And Paul uses that very strategically here to say God is about destroying the wisdom of this age. And he has several weapons, several tools in his arsenal that he's going to use to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And that's what I want you to see today. We're going to cover three weapons that God uses to destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll just tell you what those are, and then we're going to make our way through the passage. Here's three weapons God uses to destroy the wisdom of the wise. He uses the word of the cross. He uses the weakness of believers. And he uses the simpleness of the message. Let's make our way through each one of those. And you notice I didn't read the entire passage, or Libby didn't read the entire passage we're going to have for for today. We're going to make our way through each section, and I'll just read that section. All right, let's start off. The first weapon in God's arsenal that He uses to destroy the wisdom of the wise is the word of the cross. Some of your translations say the message of the cross. I'm picking up now in verse 20 in my Bible, and this is what 20 says. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word of the cross is, of course, the person of Jesus. He is the one who is the final word, the final example of what God looks like. And Jesus is the one that allows us to know what it means to come into relationship with God. Jesus is that word, and we even discovered back at Christmas that we went all the way back to uh, Genesis where the word was spoken and everything came into existence, God's word, and Jesus was co-equal with God at the framing of the entire world, and he is that word. He is that word that became flesh. His highest point in his uh, arc of all of the things that he did was at the cross. And at the cross, Jesus is the one who takes on the punishment that he does not deserve. He leads a perfect life, but he takes on that punishment that we deserved in order that he might reconcile us to God. And he does that because he loves us. 
He conquers sin and death, and so he's the only one that's ever risen from the dead and remained alive. You think of somebody like Lazarus who rose from the dead but then died again. Jesus never died. And so he resurrected, he ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God uh, advocating on our behalf. And so this is the one who is the word of the cross. Paul says that this is what happens as the result of the word of the cross. He says that it creates two classes of people. It creates a class of people who think that it's foolish and just think it's very ridiculous or it creates a class of people who are those that say this is the power of God and they trust in that message, and they become followers, of, uh, obviously, of Jesus. And so again, let's take a look for a moment here in this passage, as he's saying that the word of the cross is a weapon with God, at what the foolishness is that people see. In Paul's day, there were two groups of people. There were the Jews and the Greeks. Let's take a look at each one of those, because he said the Jews were individuals that considered the cross a stumbling block, he says. The Jews were uh, considered a Messiah that would be uh, one who would go to a cross to be uh, an oxymoron. That, that would be like ridiculous. You would never have that happen. The Messiah in Jewish mind was an individual that would come and he would just make everybody quake in their boots. He would just make everybody tremble because he's just this mighty and powerful figure. And so to have somebody that would go to the cross, well, that was a, a, a humiliating death. It was one that was fit for thieves or murderers or traitors. And anybody in the Old Testament that was hung on a tree was considered, that was shameful. That was just like beyond low. And so that would be something that you would never consider happening uh, for a, a Messiah or one coming to represent God. So the Jews just consider this to be a, a, a roadblock, a, an obstacle, something that they could never get past, something that they could never have the penny drop and say, oh, wow, this is the hand of God or the movement of God, and it just became a stumbling block they couldn't get past. Greeks, on the other hand, had a different problem with the cross because Greeks loved philosophy. Greeks had a long line of people that were considered some of the greatest philosophers the world had ever known, and this week I went just to say, you know what, I need to understand a little bit more about Greek philosophers. So I went on Wikipedia, and what I found astonished me. There was a list of 385 ancient Greek philosophers. I mean, it was page after page after page. I just kept on scrolling, and 385 Greek philosophers are there, most of whom I had no idea who they were. But there were the big three that I did know who they were, and I bet you do too. Let me go ahead and put up a graphic here, and we'll talk about the three great Greek philosophers. And you'll notice the one on the left is Socrates. He lived about 400 B.C., and like every good philosopher that was Greek, he had a school, or he had a number of pupils, a number of disciples that he would teach about the philosophy that he promoted, and his greatest pupil was Plato. Plato had his own school or his own uh, brand of, of Greek philosophy, and he had a student named Aristotle. And so those are probably three names that you've heard before, but you didn't necessarily know that they were all linked together as students all the way back to the original guy that was Socrates. And you didn't realize that they were generations of philosophers that came one after another. And that's the way that they perpetuated their Greek wisdom was through these schools where they had these great philosophers. Now, again, if you know anything about Greek philosophy or Greek philosophers, 
you know that they love thoughts and ideas. Those are the things that they just wrestled through and talked about ad nauseum. And they would just go into the forum and uh, day after day after day, they would just debate all these high and lofty thoughts. That was candy to them. That, that idea of just having a debate was very much candy to them. One person said the Greeks were intoxicated with fine words. And they didn't like just fine words, but they also liked the way that words were actually conveyed, the way that the message was delivered. And they wanted that done with clever articulateness. That's what they wanted. They wanted it to be clever, but they also wanted it to be articulate. Again, for the Greek, they would say, a crucified person, a crucified Savior. I mean, that just makes no difference to us at all. And in fact, they would consider that sophomoric. And sophos is the Greek word for wisdom. And many of you know what sophomore means. It means a wise fool. So if you're a sophomore in high school, you're not quite educated yet. You're a wise fool at that point because you haven't had enough experience to really be able to decipher the true nature of wisdom. For the Greeks, gods, plural, there were many of them, they were all considered a Greek word, apatheia. It's where we get our word apathetic. And Greek gods were all considered to be no emotion. Uh, you know, they were apathetic. No emotion, no feelings. They were detached. They were remote. And so why would God purposefully ever humble himself and go to a cross? It just made no difference whatsoever. And so human wisdom is just not going to cut it, Paul says. And unless you come to God with a level of humility and need, then the whole message of the cross, it's just going to ring tinny. It's just not going to sound like something that you're interested in at all. And so God gives the message, and He gives it out in plain sight for everybody to see, but so many people overlook it, and so many people reject it, because it's right there, but it makes no sense. It just sounds like it's tinny. It sounds like it doesn't belong. Let me tell you about uh, one of the great musicians I think our country has ever seen, and it's Yo-Yo Ma. Many of you know that Yo-Yo Ma is one of the great cello players, and you know, he, he, I mean, he's so great. I mean, this guy plays Carnegie Hall, the Ford Theater. I have a picture here of him at Red Rocks in Colorado, and many say that when you play Red Rocks, you know you've kind of made it as a band or a musician because that's just a great spot, outdoor amphitheater. It's beautiful right there in the Rockies. Yo-Yo Ma is such a great musician that he would play, for instance, at inaugurations of presidents. I mean, that's the level at which Yo-Yo Ma plays. My favorite story about Yo-Yo Ma is not him at Red Rocks. It's not him at Carnegie. It's Yo-Yo Ma that one morning went and played in the subway station in New York. He played the cello as people were coming out of the trains and going to work and bustling and hustling. And the story is told that Yo-Yo Ma played his cello, that whining sound that just kind of gets all the way down into your soul, and person after person walked by, never to realize that there was a master playing that day. That's so much like the gospel. The gospel is so readily available, but people look at it and just walk by it because it looks like it's so pedestrian. It looks like something that they could never dream up, so that's something that they don't really want. And God says, oh, I'm very pleased to allow people who need this message, and they even look dumb or foolish to receive it, because they 
are unwise by the world's standards, but they're very wise by my standards. And so I'm pleased with the message of the cross to be one that is very confounding. All right, let's move on. There's a second weapon that God uses. And the second weapon that God uses is the weakness of believers. That's the weakness of you and the weakness of me. God glories in that, and He says, oh, I can use that. That will be to my benefit. So He uses the weakness of believers. I'm picking up in verse 26, and in verse 26 it says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's saying, you know, again, not many of you are influential. Not many of you came from noble birth. None of you were all that in a bag of chips. I mean, that's what he's saying to us. None of you are that, that really important. And he says, guess what? You're joining with the original band of disciples that Jesus gathered to himself. Think about who these guys are. They're a ragtag bunch of fishermen. That's, that's what they are. There's this one guy that's the despised tax collector. That's who they were. They were very, very simple people. And those are the people that responded and said yes to Jesus. And Jesus, God is telling us, Jesus was very pleased to have very lowly people, people who are normally despised by the world, that would be the ones that would respond. God's happy to choose broken people and lowly people and less than brilliant people. And he says, the reason I do that is for a real simple reason. It's because it eliminates all boasting. Because no longer can you say, wow, look at us, how great we are. You are in the default position of saying, wow, look how great God is. We have a great God that's much greater than anything that we could ever be or anything that we could ever think or anything that we could ever demonstrate. God's great, and He's chosen us to be the ones that are weak in so many ways. I love what 2 Corinthians 4 says. It's Paul's second book to the Corinthians. And maybe this is a verse that you've memorized. I know that it's meant so much to me. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so again, he's reminding us, we're that jar of clay. You're that normal thing that's used in a household that is overlooked. There's nothing about the container that's that important. You never look at the bottle that uh, you know, the, the uh, oil comes in or the Coke comes in and admire the bottle. It's what's the contents on the inside of it. That's just the object of, uh, that contains the, the thing of value. And so he's saying, that's you. You're just that, that, indisp- that, that very dispensable object. And what's inside of it is what's, is what's important. And God has said, in your, inside your very pedestrian frame, He's put something of surpassing value, which is He's put Himself. He's put Jesus. He's put the, 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 the hope of the gospel on the very inside of you through Jesus. And so, you know, that's what He's saying here is, there's something of great value that's been placed in you, but it's not because of you. It's not because of your shell. It's something that God has placed on the inside of you. Uh, here's something I want you to remember here about the world today. Did you know that a solid 10% of the world today still lives on less than $2 a day? That's 700 million people in the world 
That's double the population of the United States that still live on less than $2 a day. That would be considered the the poorest of the poor around the world. And yet, it's many of those people that are most receptive to the gospel. And they're likely the most receptive to the gospel because, well, they have so few options. There's, There's nothing else that they really have that looks nearly as good as what Jesus looks to them. Paul says that God is pleased to give the gospel to the powerless, to the weak, to those that normally don't operate in places of power. God's pleased with that. And He's very pleased that they respond to Him in that way because really they have very little to offer in a worldly sense. And He's got everything to obviously offer to them. I found an awesome video this week that I think makes this point so well. And it's a video about people who live in Pakistan. The video is created by Voice of the Martyrs. And Voice of the Martyrs is an organization that exists to help Christians around the world that are persecuted for their faith. I think you'll watch this, and I know it moved me, and I think it will move you about the kind of people that God is calling to Himself around the world. Let's watch this. Today in Pakistan, we Christians are second-class citizens. Though we have committed no crime, we are ostracized and banished to the lowest place in society. Often we are forced to leave our villages and our own homes. We cannot get good jobs. And we have no voice in government. What is left for us is servitude. Sewage work. And we know we will never advance. church, a place where Christians come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to sing His praise, to study His Word. For while our country has turned its back on us, God has not. Sometimes it is not easy. 
the injustice. So please remember to pray for us. That we will continue to live together in fellowship. That we will continue to see the joy of the Lord in our lives. And that we will persevere in our faith no matter the cost. I love that God loves people like that. And I'm honored that those would be our brothers and sisters in Christ that have that position in the world, but the high and exalted position with God. And they're the testimony that God used the very weakness of the world, the very weakness of believers like us and believers like them for His highest glory. That's what He's doing. As He's saying, I'm confounding the wisdom of the world and I'm using things that would shame the strong in order to bring glory to myself. And I think that they are very, uh, the people that we just saw in the video are very inspiring to me in so many ways because they have found our Savior and uh, have attached themselves and are never going to let go. Well, let's look at one more thing. It's one more weapon that God uses to destroy the wisdom of the wise, and it's the simpleness of the message. I'm picking up in chapter 2, verse 1 now, and this is what Paul says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing except you, ex, ex, to, among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says this, I keep the message very simple. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul, who had all this religious training, Paul, who was a, you know, a, a high level of, of scholar, said, all that didn't matter to me. I came to you in Corinth, and he says, I had a level of weakness and fear, and I came with you in trembling. Why? Well, because Paul, in previous places where he'd been, had been beaten and run out of town, and he arrived in Corinth or any city, and there was a level of concern. How was he going to be received? But Paul learned a valuable lesson. He said, I never wanted, anywhere I went and preached the message, I didn't want them to think of what a great preacher I was. I wanted them to think of what a great God I was talking about. And I wanted them to rely not upon my persuasion, but I wanted them to rely upon the power of God. Corinthian church, don't rely upon persuasion. You're so used to hearing that. You're so used to hearing these fine arguments by your Greek philosophers. That's not what matters. What matters is the power of God. And that's where I want you to reside as you're hearing the message that I preached to you. And so he said, I kept it simple. I kept it Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what I talked about all the time. When it's all said and done, I di didn't want you, uh, Paul would say, to rely upon me or upon my persuasion, but I wanted you to rely upon the message and the power of the gospel that you were hearing. I've got a great story about that. A number of years ago, Greg Laurie came to speak in, uh, in Seattle. And many of you know the name Greg Laurie. He's a pretty popular evangelist. And he came here to have one of his uh, outreaches, and I went to that. And it was a wonderful night. 
I heard some great music that night. There were some stories about people who trusted Christ. And then it came to the big moment where Greg Laurie was going to speak. And I was like, all right, I can't wait for this. This is going to be really good. And Greg Laurie got into it, and he was talking to the, the, the audience, the people that gathered that night. And I, the longer that went on, the more that I went like, you know, this is really not like anything really special. I mean, you know, honestly, I mean, the message is kind of boring. And I remember thinking that to myself like, you know, wow, I, mean, I think I kind of expected more. Until this point arrived. And it was the point at which he asked people to trust Christ. And at that moment, I was dismayed because the message was not too simple for those people. There were hundreds that got up and went up in order to receive Christ at that outreach. And it was as if the Lord said to me, Brian, the simple message is all I've ever needed. I don't need a lot of pomp and circumstance. I just need the simple message that gets to people and I will never forget that because it was a rebuke to me. It is not the persuasion that God needs. And that should be great news for all of us because you don't need a doctorate in philosophy to talk to people. All you're ever telling people is about the goodness of Jesus, that He's this one who comes and lives a perfect life, dies a terrible death, but rises again, and He's made a difference in your life, and He's the greatest thing that ever could have happened to you. That's your message. It's really that clear. And he says, that is what I want people to rely upon, is the power of God in their lives. And by the power of God, he means the power of Jesus, obviously, the power of God in Jesus, enough to raise him from the dead. But I think he's also talking about the power of God to change a life, the power of God to forgive a person, the power of God to change somebody. And he's saying, the way that I'm treating you is the way you're going to have power now to treat somebody else. And so the power of God is seen in so many different ways and different dimensions, but people, when they see it, are saying, wow, I'm very attracted to that. And it destroys the way that they might think that God would be communicating. The simpleness of the message is all that Paul says I ever needed. Well, my question for you today is, has God humbled you? You remember the topic sentence. The topic sentence was that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so I'm asking you the question today, is the word of the cross to you foolishness or is it power? And I'm hoping that it's power. If it is power, it's because God has humbled you. God has got you to the spot where you're willing to submit to Him because, well, you have no other choice really. You almost have to. For me today, uh, it, it, it's, it's back again to this simple message of the cross that is what God uses in order to humble all of the world, including to humble us. I'd like to end with a story today. It's a, a favorite story of mine about uh, those that take tests, especially final exams. It says, in the spring of 2002, Denise Banderman left work early in order to go to take her final exam at the college where she was, Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri. It was a final exam in youth ministry. When she got to the class, she said everybody was had those last-minute uh, study uh, crams, and he said there was a little bit of nervous energy in the room, and then the professor came in, and the professor said, I'm just going to go over a few things with all of you about what's going to be on the final exam, and she said, much of it I knew, but there was a big portion of it that I didn't know, and I raised my hand, and, and I said, you know, I don't think that we learned that in, in lecture, and he says, no, that part was in the book, but you're responsible for the book, too. And so she said, I gulped, but I said, well, you know, I guess that's fair. He did tell us in the syllabus that we were required to know all of that. She said there was a little nervous energy in the room, 
And finally, he said, okay, it's time for the test. And he says, I want everybody to leave their test face down until everybody gets their test, and I'll tell you when you can begin. Everybody dutifully left their test on their, in their desk, and he said, you may now begin. And she said, I turned over my paper, and my paper had the entire final exam on it with all of the answers that were filled in, and my name was at the top of the paper in red. And he said to everybody that day, he said, this is the final exam. All of the answers on the test are correct, and you will receive an A in this exam. The reason you passed this test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All your work and your preparation did not help you get this A. You just experienced grace. And I love what he did next. Because what he did next, I think, was what really brought it home. What he did next is he went and sat in front of every person and he asked them three questions. The very first question is, what is your grade in this exam? And everybody had to say, an A. You told me I got an A and I'm going to believe I've got an A. He asked the next question to them, do you deserve this grade? And everybody kind of had to stumble around, well, you know, I guess really no. I mean, I did study for it, but I didn't really deserve that grade. And then he asked the question, out of all your work and your preparation, did it help you get that A? And everybody had to say, honestly, no. I may have done a lot of study for it, but that's not what helped me get this A. And he said to everybody, you have just experienced grace He says, some things you learn from lectures, some things you learn from research, but there are only some things that you learn from experience. You've just experienced grace. And 100 100 years from now, if you know Jesus as your Savior, your name will be written down in a book, and you will have nothing to do with it being written in that book because that will be the ultimate expression of grace. Friends, God destroys the wisdom of the wise. He's pleased to invite you and me into life with His Son, Jesus. And He is doing this in order to demonstrate to the world the, word of the, the message of the cross, the word of the cross. That is foolishness to so many, but it's the power of salvation to all of us who found our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today, the word of the cross. We thank you that you have seen fit to uh, repudiate the, the wisdom of the wise, the wisdom of the world. It means nothing and it will never bring us into salvation with you. You've chosen a message that none of us could have ever dreamt up, none of us could have ever imagined. And you've said, this is my message. Won't you receive it from me? And we, many of us, have. Lord, for those today that are perhaps hearing this message and they've never said, I've seen this as the power of God, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, allow them to come over that sense that it's foolishness, over the sense of it being a stumbling block, and into the space of saying, that's the best news I've ever heard. And I receive Jesus today. I want to walk with Jesus today. And I want the power of the cross to reside in my life. Lord, for we as a church, we pray that we would continue in that walk of knowing you in a very simple way and relying upon you for all that is life. We pray this in the name of Jesus.
our Savior. Amen.